Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We are back again uh, live, live to tape, and our guest today is Ian Smiley. Thanks, Ian, for joining us. Good to be here. We're in uh, Ottawa. I'm in Ottawa. Uh, beautiful, hot, humid day. Um, for those of you who don't know who Ian Smiley is, he's, uh, um, he's a critic, he's an author, he's an um, outspoken activist, I think I could probably say with uh, some accuracy. He's lived in, I'll give you a little bit of a bio here before we get into the interview, he's lived in Sierra Leone, in Nigeria, Bangladesh, 
He was the uh, executive director of CUSO. He's worked at Tufts and Tulane universities. He's a consultant and does a lot of different uh, types of uh, work with many Canadian, American, and European uh, organizations. He's written uh, quite a few books, The Charity of Nations, Freedom from Want, one of my personal all-time favorite titles. Um, Freedom from Want, uh, Blood on the Stone, about the uh, co- conflict diamond industry. He helped develop a 48 government, Kimberly, uh, what was called a 48 government uh, collective called the Kimberley Process. A, a regulatory system. Regulatory system, and it was a, a global certification process around um, halting the traffic in conflict diamonds. He was the first witness at uh, the war crimes trial of Charles Taylor at The Hague. He... Um, was just, I believe, this year uh, awarded an honorary doctorate. He can correct me from Clark University in Massachusetts. And apparently, uh, so I read, the citation said, quote, your life's work uh, has been an inspiration to those who seek justice in the diamond industry and more broadly to those who seek a just solution to development and trade, close quote. Do you remember that? I I do remember. It was kind of embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah, I do remember it. It was it was it was it was a very nice event. I, it came up right out of the blue. I wasn't expecting that at all, you know. And and to come from an American university, kind of interesting. Yeah. And, and oh, and you received the Order of Canada in two thousand and three. Yeah. yeah, excellent. All right, so uh, I'm sure I haven't covered it all, but I think that's a, a pretty inv- impressive CV. So, why why are you an expert, Ian? Why? I mean, clearly, the few things that I've talked about here certainly position you as one. If I was just to read that, I'd say, you know what, I think I need to pay attention to this guy. But there's clearly a very long history of experience here. Can you tell me a bit more about that? You know, the definition of an expert is somebody from out of town with PowerPoint. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I've met a few of those. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, I think expert, in, in a way... I think a lot of people who are experts are people who remember, people who have experience and who remember mm-hmm. the experience and who, who build on the experience. So the, 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 the trick is to stick around, stay in the business, pay attention and remember things. Does that mean, um, it's great, I love that distinction, so you're something about memory and so on. Is that about, are you talking about the connections as a result of that memory? that you're making now. So you look back and you say, now that experience in Bangladesh made sense with the, what I experienced in Nigeria. Yes, there's that. And, and, and another kind of connection is just the connections over time. I went to Sierra Leone as a CUSO volunteer in the 1960s. And um, a lot of the people that I knew then by total chance, I think, but maybe it's not chance, have, have sort of bubbled up through the ranks in Sierra Leone. So, um, you know, one of my former students was head of non-formal primary education in the Ministry of Education. Uh, the, uh, one of the teachers at my school became the Minister of Agriculture. Another teacher at my school, um, her husband became the Minister of Mines. And when I got involved in Diamonds, there was a connection there. Uh, there are a bunch of connections over, over time where people who were my age then have sort of aged as well. And, and if you stay in touch, you know, they've grown and matured. And if they've stayed in the business, some of them, uh, that's a different kind of connection. And, and uh, it gives you, in a way, it's like an old boy network, but right. it's a different kind of old right. boy network right. than what you get if you went right. to Upper old, Canada College. Old boy sometimes has a pretty pejorative yeah, to it, yeah. right? But uh, so 1960s, long time ago, what... What made you go on the first? I mean, was that your first sort of entry into the international development sector field? Yes, I was. Uh, when I 
when I was graduating from university, I thought I'll join CUSO and go to Africa if I could. Uh, a lot of people were doing it. CUSO was a big organization in those days. It had more than, a, I think at its height, it had about 1,200 people overseas. Wow. So it was, it was um, something that quite a few people were doing. It was a, a, an idea to go out. You know, I became executive director of CUSO some years later, and we had studies done of the profile of a typical CUSO volunteer. Why do people go? And, and it was usually a mix of things. It was, um, there was a bit of escapism. There was a bit of uh, wanting to do good. Uh, there was a bit of wanting to have some adventure. And I think that's what it was for me. It was a little of all of those things. You know, to say that you want to go off and save the world, there's a bit of that, but that's not the only thing. So would, would, and if that's all it is, it's probably not very healthy. Would, uh, it's interesting. I, I actually, before we get, uh, Ian is uh, blogging uh, on uh, the Ottawa Citizen uh, website right now, or for the Ottawa Citizen, and I, I encourage you to check it out. And his most recent post was yesterday, uh, 12.50 p.m., in fact, yesterday. Um, uh, part two of a, uh, an article called Ending Poverty, Part Two, Take a Bow, Capitalism. And, and I want to get to that in a minute, uh, Ian, but were you a volunteerist? No, no, no. No, absolutely not. Uh, I went for... The plan was to go for two years to teach high school in a in a in a town up country in in Sierra Leone up country is what they say, but it was a pretty remote place, hard to get to, terrible roads. Um, we had no electricity or running water. Um, it was a pretty pretty basic existence, and it was in the heart of the diamond mining area. It was very chaotic and uh, sometimes violent uh, area. So uh, there was there was no tourism uh, involved. We worked, uh, you know, a full, a full day. And the idea was that you'd work a full day, a full week, a full term, a full year, and you'd be there for two years living and working under local, local conditions. This was not a holiday. This was not something you do in your spare time. This was a two-year a two-year commitment. It's a pretty serious commitment. I mean, a lot of the volunteerist sort of approaches today are, you know, two and three and four weeks at a time, I suppose. Um, I mean, I have to admit, one of my, one, uh, I will admit, my, one of my first international experiences, I wouldn't call it a volunteerist uh, approach, but I was on strike at the time as an electrician. I went to Eldoret, Kenya to help build a medical clinic. And I have to say, I mean, it was a huge seed that was planted. So, you know, there's also a pretty negative, I suppose, approach to those short-term trips, I guess you might call them. But do you, do you feel the same way about them? Or, or? Well, I think a lot of people would go for longer. It's just that the opportunities are not are not there. The opportunities that were once there are not there. Right. When, when CUSO was in its heyday, African countries, Asian countries, the Caribbean, the Pacific, these, these countries were newly independent. They were building like crazy. Hospitals and schools were opening faster than they could be staffed. And so organizations like CUSO, VSO, the Peace Corps provided the, the human resources that were necessary to, to take up the slack. Over time, over 10, 20, 30 years, that changed. Now there are local graduates who can do those jobs and the demand for BA generalists, which is what we were, mm. uh, just, just isn't there. To the extent that they need teachers, they need teacher trainers, they need people with a lot of experience, specialized teachers, specialized subjects. So it's changed. I think a lot right. of people would go for two years, but there aren't that many opportunities right. now. Right. So, I mean, that's a, you've seen a lot of changes. You've seen a lot of conflict. You've seen a lot of 
theories. Uh, you've seen a lot of practice, experience, different governments in place in these, in these countries around the world. You've seen policy at work and not at work here in Canada and the U.S. and abroad. Does, does development work? Currently in the, the, the climate we're here in Canada with DFAT and CETA kind of merging, if you will, and that's a pretty positive uh, outlook, I suppose. Do, do you think development works? Well, I guess it depends on your definition of development. Good. Um, You know, a lot of the emphasis these days is on economic growth. You hear this over and over again. Um, The president of the World Bank talks about growth, the need for growth. And and, and this is a um, cyclical thing. I mean, it's like a pendulum. The pendulum swings this way and that way. Sometimes the pendulum swings so hard it bangs against the side of the clock. (laughs) There was, a, there was an economist at the World Bank some years ago, Herman Daly. I, I loved a quote that he put in a book. Uh, he said, you know, when something grows, it gets bigger. When something develops, it gets different. So growth and development are not synonymous. Uh, and um, we may come to the, 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 the question of what kind of development investment, what, what kind of investments are needed for development. But development is, is not just investment and, you know, the, the idea of, uh, it's not, it's not the, the trickle-down theory. It's, there's, there's an awful lot more to development than that. De- development of the individual, development of the community, development of, of the nation. Um, and, if you, and if you think it's going to happen accidentally as a result of some other thing you're doing, like setting up a Volkswagen plant, um, you better think again because... If you really want to end poverty, you have to, I think, you have to target poverty. You have to target it pretty much head on. Um, so we haven't, still haven't got to my opening question, but in your book that you edited a, a couple of years ago, Patronage or Partnership, uh, also worth uh, looking at a collection of essays, um, <clears throat> you talk about uh, the, the idea of, being, of having the capacity to actually build capacity. Uh, is that kind of uh, what you're talking about with respect to good development, would you say, or, or impactful development, I suppose, or the, the phrase sustainable, which is, you know... I think they're related, but it's a little different. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the development business is full of buzzwords and, yeah, and, sure and phrases and uh, fads and all the rest of it, and capacity building is, is a big one. Um, we talk about how we need to build the capacity of developing country governments to govern better. We talk about the need to build the capacity of teachers or administrators or whatever. Um, you know, I can't, I can't build your capacity. I can tell you stuff, but that's information. That's not the same thing as knowledge and experience. Information, we, we, we talk about the knowledge Revolution. It's not a knowledge revolution. We have an information revolution, but we have a glut of information. We have so much information now that people don't know what to do with it. Information is only as good as the recipient's capacity to put it into action. Uh, you know, I sometimes talk about my uh, granddaughter. You know, when she was 10, she could read. She could follow instructions. I could, I could give her the recipe on how to make a cake, but I bet if she'd never done it before... She would make a mistake. She would she would make a mess. She would not have a cake at the end of it. I would not have built her capacity by giving her information. She needed more than information. She needed experience and some 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 practical hands-on mm-hmm. lessons and, and 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 maybe a few failures. 
to understand why you have to do things this way and not that way. So capacity building is a good idea, mm. but it's more than training. And we seem to narrow it down so much to training programs. We, we build the capacity of African armies. We send people there to train them how to be soldiers. We don't train them. We don't, we don't give them the capacity to be good citizens. All we're teaching them how to do is to fire a gun. Right. And sometimes that backfires, as, as it did in Mali, where we had been training the Malian army, and what did they do? They overthrew the government. Sounds almost to me like uh, having served an 8,500-hour apprenticeship as an electrician, it sounds almost to me like you're talking a little bit about mentorship, something you and I have spoken about in the past, this idea of coming alongside and actually mentoring over a two-year period, like you know when you first went to, to, to say, uh, uh, Sierra Leone, rather than a two-week drop, parachute in. <laughs> yeah. You're actually spending the time and taking the, and, 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 and you know, intentionality, passion, and commitment, it sounds to me like. Yeah, you know, some people say they went to the school of hard knocks, right. and other people right. other people dismiss that. They say, "Well, that's silly. That's nonsense." Yeah. I mean, that's just a. But it's true, I and mean, people have to learn. Sometimes you have to learn the hard way. Sometimes you have to learn by hitting your thumb with a hammer. And and if you never hit your thumb with a hammer, you're lucky. But you probably hit something else. I mean, sooner or later, you learn how to use a hammer by doing by making mistakes as right. well as by right. doing it the right way. Um, I often say that uh, you know the de development business is full of failure, and the failure to learn from failure mm. is a big problem. We hide the failures. We don't we don't talk about the failures. We talk only about the successes. Look on the CETA website and see if you can find a single reference to a failure. Look on the World Bank website and see if you can find any reference to a failure. There's lots of critics have written books about how bad the World Bank has failed in many instances. The bank itself has rarely admitted it. Right. And the same thing with NGOs. NGOs give me the money, I know how to do it. I'll, I'll fix it, 25 bucks a month and I'll fix it. It's easy and I know how. It isn't easy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we knew how to do this, we would have done it a long time ago. You know, I, you're, I think you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, what uh, my, I mean, I think to some degree, we need to start re-educating or educating donors uh, individuals, governments, and and uh, faith-based organizations to say, hang on a second here, the whole idea of impact. You know, I mean, you've said many times in many articles that I've read of yours and uh, in many different places, you've talked about this idea of sustainability and long-term impact. You can't, you can't really tell. You're not going to be able to tell in a couple of years. I don't know if this is exactly what you've written, but it's certainly the sentiment I've taken away is that you've got to, you've got to look at something over a longer, a longer period of time. These things take effort, they take, uh, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of thought that goes into the, uh, the process. Fads come and go, as we talked about earlier, but actually having an effective, sustainable, long-term um, change take place requires way more than just uh, a two-year microeconomic development project. Yeah, I mean, if you think about public awareness, I mean, how long did it take us to discover and learn and start to act on the problem of smoking. Right. I mean, we've come a long way, but we haven't solved the problem. A lot of people are still smoking. Um, you know, awareness, education, capacity building, uh, there's, you know, a huge number, a huge number of components and drivers in this. And, and uh, when you're talking about um, poor people in developing countries, it's, it's sometimes even, even more difficult. 
And when you're talking about trying to educate Canadians about poor people in developing countries, when we have so much trouble just getting through to them on mm. smoking, the perils of smoking, um, we have a long way to go. Well, there's such a, I mean, it's so great, the, the whole, you know, Ignaz Semmelweis and the history of hand washing. You know, you look at what happened in Vienna and this, you know, what is that, 170 years ago. And I think the stats say that still only about 40% of people, people today in, in developed countries in italics are washing their hands. And I just read a, a statistic showing that men are worse than women, much worse. <laughs> <Is that right? laughs> yeah. right. So do a test. Next time you're in a washroom, uh, have a look and, and see how things pan out. And are they using soap? And are they actually using soap? Yeah. Um, you know, you talked about the whole idea of knowledge, the distinction. I'd love to go into that. I don't know if we got time. Maybe we come back to it. But, you know, knowledge, the distinction between that and, and information. T.S. Eliot's got that wonderful phrase, where's the knowledge we have lost in information? It's just so, so beautiful. Um, in your recent blog, uh, you talk about um, World Bank data and it being, I think, troubling. Uh, and where, where apparently, according to uh, World Bank data, 1.1 billion, billion people lived in absolute grinding poverty in 1980. And the number is the same today. That's that's you writing uh, on the Ottawa Citizen blog from yesterday's post, responding to uh, the president of the World Bank, basically saying that we will be celebrating, uh, I believe, in the year 2030 because the end of is it the end of extreme poverty or is it the end of poverty according according? No, to it's extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. And, and and by extreme poverty, I mean we're talking about a dollar dollar dollar, 20, a dollar, dollar twenty-five a day. I mean not enough. To sustain life, not a, not enough to buy the calories necessary to feed yourself, much less have any kind of decent life. I mean, I, I, I need you to respond to that, Ian. But on some level, a dollar twenty-five a day is almost a meaningless distinction, isn't it? I mean, well, it's it is, not but, a, but it's they not have a this living wage of for, for no, and the number doesn't really mean much because it's uh, you know it's adjusted against a basket of uh, things that people need. So a dollar, it doesn't mean a dollar a day at. Canadian value. Right, I mean, we right. couldn't live on a dollar a day. Right. It, it, the, the numbers are not the same. There, there is a there is an equation that they use to balance it out and to balance it against currencies and inflation and all the rest of it. So, so it's a standardized number. So is this just a, a rhetorical statement? Is this a hope so universe <clears throat> that the, the the World Bank is living in, or what? What are, we, what are we talking about here? Well, a number of things are happening. We're having the end of the Millennium Development Goals come in 2015. So we set. Um, all of these uh, goals in 2000 for the year 2015, we were going to have big changes in education and health and uh, gender and poverty. We were going to do all these things. We haven't done very well. Um, we've made some progress, but not very much progress in some areas and uh, no progress in some areas in some countries. So the question is, what comes after 2015? We're trying to figure out whether we should have new Millennium Development Goals or wouldn't be millennium anymore. New development goals or sustainable development goals. Or, that's, that's what they're talking about. That's what they're talking about. Development goals. So I think the, 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 broad, the broad brushstroke is um, looking at 2030 and saying we can end poverty by then. And that will have to come along with some, some of the inputs that will be required. But I think this is what people are, are looking towards. And I think, you know, what they're saying is that we, we can do it because look how successful we've been over the last 20 or 30 years in reducing poverty from 2 billion down to 1 or 1.1 billion where it is today. Now, this comes back to your very first question about, about 
knowledge and expert and all the rest of it. I mean, some of it just, you've been around long enough mm-hmm. that you read the papers in 1980 and remember the number. We're back to memory, yes. We're back to memory. The, the World Bank World Report on Poverty in 1980, and it's still available online on their website, but I have a hard copy as well, just in case they take it down. <laughs> uh, it showed that there were 730 million people living in absolute poverty then. And they were not including China because they didn't have any data for China at the time, but their guesstimate was about 350 or 360 million. So if you add them together, it looks like about 1.1 billion. Same number we're using today. They used that number in 1990, 1.1 or 1.2 billion. By by 2000, they were increasing it. They were saying the number of people living in absolute poverty is 1.4 or 1.5. So the number was creeping up. And what 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 has happened since then is they've they've pushed it down. So I'm not saying it very clearly. They revised the the base figure from the 1.1 that it was in 1980 and 1990, they jacked that number up to as high as 1.9 or 2 billion. Hmm. And they are saying, now look at what wonderful success we've had and bring it down to 1.1 billion. So, you know, one of my my favorite books when I was uh, studying economics at McGill was How to Lie with Statistics. Mm -hmm. You know... I haven't read it, I know of it. Well, it's still in print. It was first published in the 50s, and it's still in print, and there's a good reason, because uh, it's funny, and it's clever, and it's true. People do lie with statistics and averages and all the rest of it. Now, something good has happened. The world population has grown a lot since 1980. So 1.1 billion as a percentage of the world population in 1980 was 25%. Today, it's only 16%. So the percentage of people living in absolute poverty has come down. But the absolute number, the one that The Economist and the World Bank and the others keep using, this amazing success story that we've got, really hasn't changed. It's static. There are a lot of people living in absolute poverty. And if if we want it to change in the next 15 years, we're going to have to do something different. Mm. So, I mean, I've often heard you introduced uh, when you speak as a critic. Do do you think that uh, sometimes you're being too negative? That oh, you know, with the with the World Bank response, oh come on, Ian, we we've done pretty well, you know. Okay, maybe you're right about the numbers, (laughs) and you know, you're right. We still got it on the website and so on. But you know, the reality is that the the percentages have come down. I mean, Stephen Lewis has kind of said the same thing that you're saying with respect to aid statistics. You know, because of the numbers and how you know lying with statistics and so on, it's not quite as rosy of a picture as we think it might be. And I think that, um, well, I think we like to tell good stories, it seems to me, and with respect to, you know, uh, certain things when it comes to how we're helping out others. But it just, it, it kind of makes me wonder, um, where, where, where do you really get the truth, you know? Well, there's lots of good news stories out there. There's a lot of good things have been done, a lot of, a lot of uh, changes that have happened. For the positive, there has been a lot of growth, and some of that growth has resulted in development, real development. We could have done more. Mm. If, if, if we know what works, or if we take the things that we do know work and had done more of them, we wouldn't have so many people living in absolute poverty. We can't kid ourselves that by continuing what we were doing in the past, this 1.1 billion number is going to change very much. 
we really have to we really have to hit this a lot harder. It isn't going to happen by itself. And what the World Bank president says is, I think because he thinks there isn't enough aid money in the pipeline, and there certainly isn't, it's actually mm -hmm. going down. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to have to get the money from the private sector. So that means more foreign investment, more jobs, more development, more growth, and therefore more um, fewer people living in poverty. I, I don't think it scans. It doesn't. It doesn't track that easily. It's that is not the answer. In my blogs, blog on this subject, I, I use the, the, a re reference to John Kenneth Galbraith, who said that the trickle-down theory is like feeding oats to a horse. If you feed enough oats, oats to the horse, some of it will find its way mm. through to the road for the sparrows. And I don't think he was talking about oats falling out of the feed bag. The, the trickle-down theory has limited value where right. the very poorest are concerned. That's why we've always had people in abject poverty everywhere. You really have to have targeted programs, social safety nets, and other kinds of investment to get people up out of the misery. You've got to have targeted education programs and health programs. People can't... All the investment in the world isn't going to work if people are too sick to work or are not literate enough to work. Do you think there's a sense in which the international community or just communities at large and maybe particularly in particular in the West have, have forgotten how to, have forgotten how to remember? Well, all of these things are a long way off and it's very easy to fall back on the idea that charity begins at home. I heard a good quote, I forget where it came from. Charity begins at home, but it doesn't end there. Right. Um, and I, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about the idea of self-interest. Mm. Uh, Julian Fantino, the CETA minister, has said uh, Canada has to get some benefit out of the aid program. Right. Well, we do get benefit out of the aid program in the long run if poor countries are not poor. They become trading partners. They become places where we can invest and, and, and there will be returns to us. But better, better than that, they are not going to be a drag on the on, on, on the world economy in, in, in the way that so many are today. The um, the problem of pollution doesn't stop at national borders. The problem of very poor people, they don't stop at international borders anymore. They're 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 on the move. Millions, hundreds of millions of, of, of refugees. Um, bad ideas, they travel, they don't stop at international borders. Once they did, because we didn't have instant communications, but now everybody hears the same thing and they form their own conclusions if they're not well-educated or if they're desperately poor or desperately angry. Um, so it's in our interest, it's in our own self-interest to make sure that we don't have these pockets of absolute misery. They're not pockets, these are deep holes of absolute misery and destitution. In, 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 in The End of Poverty, Jeffrey Sachs says, I think one of his simple responses to people, why should we care about others or why should we care about other places around the world? And single word answer is terrorism. I mean, probably a massive oversimplification on, on some regard, but... but well, I think, if that works for you, then yeah, think about it because yeah. uh, a lot of it comes from places where people are angry. Yes. It, it isn't necessarily very poor people who are terrorists, but it is people who are angry about what's going on in their countries. And I've got these twisted ideas about how to change things. Certainly the old way, the way that we've been offering for so long, hasn't worked that well and certainly isn't working fast enough. 
You talk, you, you end the blog, uh, your yesterday's blog with the, the phrase short-term dangerous self-interest. So is that kind of where you're coming you're, you to? And you're, you say you've been thinking a lot about self-interest of late. Are you making distinctions now? Because um, it's something I, I too have thought a great deal about. And how do you answer the question of, you know, TELUS, for instance, says, I believe they use the phrase, keeping it in our own backyard. So... You know, whatever they do uh, from, from a philanthropic perspective is in Ontario or it's in Canada. Canadian Tire, same thing. You know, they've got these corporations. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily negative about that, but it's just pretty inter- interesting to me, this idea of, of, you know, keeping it at home. Well, what is home? Is home Ontario? Is home Parry Sound? Is home Canada? I mean, we, we have decided that... Um, there are things that we must have for all Canadians, certain levels of health, certain levels of education. You have All Canadians have to have certain opportunities and there have to be social safety nets. We can't have absolute poverty in, in Newfoundland and, and have people living high off the hog in another part of the country. We, we, we've got to spread the wealth a little bit. Otherwise, there will be all kinds of confusion and unhappiness. The European Union was founded in part for that reason. If you have countries that are desperately poor, they're going to be a drag on their neighbors. Mm. So bringing very poor countries like Portugal and Ireland and others into the European Union hasn't worked all that well yet, but they understand the need to try and keep it together. And the fact that those countries did come into the European Union did raise standards of living in, in, in all of them. Why would we think it's any different for... Africa. I mean, what, what, why is Africa so alien and so different and so far away that we wouldn't consider it that kind of an approach to Africa? You know, it's, it's good for Newfoundland to be part of Canada and to be, and to be well off. I mean, Newfoundland isn't, isn't as much a have-not province anymore as, as Ontario is. Mm. So, you know, we, we, we level out these playing fields. And I, I think the idea of leveling out the playing fields on a global level is why we have the United Nations, why we have aid programs, why we have the World Bank and the IMF and all the rest of it. Um, it's not working well enough or fast enough. What do you say to somebody who says, that's great, Ian, but you know what? we got problems at home. It's, it's a question that I've really struggled with and I've certainly had in different variations over the past few years, you know, working in the field and, and, and teaching in international development and so on. Uh, you know, we have poverty at home, Ian. You know, we got food banks here and concerns and issues. Um, <laughs> I was uh, I was at a recent uh, talk with with uh, Julian Fantino, and one of the phrases that he used in the talk was, "Now that I've traveled, this is what I've seen." So there's a whole re- a list of reasons why that is potentially uh, unsettling. But the fact that he actually got uh, you know boots on the ground into a country, Burkina Faso. Uh, Mali in different places, he, he, he finally sort of realized, or not maybe finally realized, but realized that maybe there's, a, there's distinctions here to be made. How, what, 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 do you, what do you have to say to that person? Well, of course, not everybody can go to Africa and have this first-hand yep. experience. So um, they, have to, they have to take it from the organizations that are working on these things. They, they take it from NGOs and from Julian Fantino when he, when he speaks on these subjects. I don't think we're speaking enough on these subjects, and I don't think we're explaining it very well. We've explained it in, in terms of child sponsorship and uh, emergency assistance and 
how easy it is and we have to give people a helping hand and uh, this is temporary and it'll all be over soon. It isn't going to be over soon. It isn't easy. It's easy enough to help somebody after a tsunami. It isn't easy to create jobs for young people in economies that are desperately poor. And part of the reason they're poor is because they can't trade with us. Because we've set up tariff barriers or we've set up uh, uh, subsidy arrangements for our industries so that they can't compete. I mean, this, this isn't only about charity. It isn't only about development assistance. It's about, it's about a level playing field in, in, in trade and it's investment. Like it's fiscal misbehavior. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the, let me just... Uh, you, quote, you quote a stat here. You say U.S. government subsidies to American rice farmers, for example, totaled $13.3 billion between 95 and... Yeah, that's the one I was, I, was, I was scratching my head for that one. Flooded the world with cheap American rice, undercutting food self-sufficiencies in poor countries across Africa and Asia, and actually contributing to starvation in Haiti. You know, I started in Sierra Leone, uh, and Sierra Leone used to be self-sufficient in, in, in food production. Mm. It used to export rice. Rice is the staple of the diet. Now they have to import rice, and the rice is American rice. Why can a poor country not produce, one that once did, why can it not produce its enough rice to feed itself? Why does it have to have American rice? The reason is that farmers can't produce the rice at the same price as the American rice that's flooding the market. And the American rice is cheaper because of these huge farm subsidies that the American government gives American rice farmers. So cheap American rice floods poor markets and people simply can't produce. It's not a question of labor. I mean, there are a lot of things that cost the same amount in Sierra Leone as in the U.S. Gasoline to get the rice to market, uh, fertilizer, pesticides, a lot, of, a lot of things cost the same or more in a developing country than they do in, in the U.S. When those things are subsidized in one place and when they're not in another, and in fact, they're not allowed to be subsidized. The IMF and the World Bank will tell the Sierra Leone government that you cannot subsidize farmers, that this is not, this is not sound economics. Um, then they're doomed. They're doomed, not, they're doomed, doomed to food aid. So is that, is that what you mean a little bit by dangerous self-interest? Would yes, you say? Yes, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Narrow, short-term self-interest, whatever we can get you know, I, I spent quite a lot of time in Pakistan over the years, and I, 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 I got to thinking about the way taxi drivers in Karachi behave. <laughs> taxi drivers in That's Karachi. That's a great opening line for a novel, by yeah. the way. It really would be, yeah. Well, they all want to get to the head of the line. Hmm. If there is a red light, and, and, and if there's enough force to stop people at the red light, Either either moral force or a cop at the intersection, uh, or enough traffic going or enough across. Traffic. Yeah, that's usually the um, case. Yeah. they will pile onto that intersection. They will get into the ditch on the side. They'll 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 be right across the intersection. There'll be traffic facing them on the other side, right across right across the road. And when the opening comes, they will all move, and you will have the most horrendous traffic jam. They all think that they can get through the intersection and get ahead of the rest of them and that they will be on the open road but they never are they never are they just make it worse everybody gets all jammed up and nothing happens and i i think that's to a large extent the way the world economic system seems to work it's certainly the way 
I, I think a lot of developing countries probably see it because they can't get across that right. that intersection. It's so crowded with all of the rich countries. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said the the problem with the free market is that it hasn't really been tried yet, <laughs> which is a great line. Would would you sort of echo that statement with respect to this kind of behavior? Yeah, that's a that's a good one. It's a bit like uh, Churchill's yes, uh, Churchill is. who said that uh, democracy is um, the worst form of government there is, but it's better than all the others. Yeah, better than all the others. Yes. Yeah, I uh, yeah I'm no I'm no economist, but the the uh, the gap. It seems, uh, would you agree, seems to be growing? Well, in some places it's, it's not. I mean, you have um, the growth of countries that were once poor and once categorized as developing. China, obviously, and Brazil, South Africa, um, Russia, the BRICS, as they call them, India. Um, so they're developing a lot more clout on the international stage. The problem is that when they go head-to-head with us, uh, they usually do it from their own narrow self-interest. They're not doing it on behalf of others who were once, who, 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 are, who are like they once were. So they're not, they're not it's not a class action suit. Uh, they're, they're, they're really trying to get to the head of the line like the other taxi drivers. So we've learned a few things uh, to our own peril, um, but it hasn't really helped a lot of the very poor countries. I, I think China, Chinese behavior in developing countries is as neo-colonialist or as mm-hmm. colonial as anything that we ever did. Um, I think the reason a lot of African countries will accept Chinese investment and Chinese aid in a way they don't anymore from us or they don't want to hear from us is Partly it comes with no strings, but partly because any port in a storm is better than nothing, and we are we are such fair weather friends. Um, you know, you talked about a moral force uh, in the traffic jam. You were you were at the, and I think there's something connected here to this whole notion of dangerous self-interest. And you know, at the the first witness in the trial of Charles Taylor. Certainly, I'm sure, have followed the life and times of Joseph Kony and others and so on in more recent history in Africa. What, I mean, what do you think it is that, that enables people to make the choices and the decisions that they do um, without moral fiber, without a foundation? Uh, how is it that somebody like Kony can say, well, I'm following the Ten Commandments or a version thereof or a paraphrase thereof and I'm going to behave uh, in, in this particular way and then up, you know, and then end up, uh, ending so many lives. And, and I mean, just the violence and the, the disregard for, for children and so on. And the list goes on. Um, the, the conflict diamonds that you've dealt with and the, the I'm sure the horrors that you've seen in that, uh, uh, world. And then you look at something like, you know, Chinese investment, our colonial past. Is it just, is it, are we back to remembering again? Are we back to the holy shit, look how we behaved that, you know, and it, and, and it has to, there has to be that aha moment over time. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I continue to struggle with that myself. What, what, what measure do we use to say to somebody, this is how you should behave? 
and Charles Taylor and Joseph Kony and, 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 and Chinese investors, you can't behave that way. And, you know, obscene free market raving, you know, capitalists, you can't behave that way. Well, of course, some of those people, Charles Taylor or Joseph Kony, uh, regardless of what they say, they're psychopaths. You know, they can quote scripture or whatever. Or whatever. They're, they, are, they are bad people and they need to be put away. Uh, they're criminals and that's why we have a criminal justice system. We don't have a very good international criminal justice system, but sometimes it works and sometimes we can nail them. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said about this absence of memory, this uh, forgetfulness on statistics and the forgetfulness that some things have been tried and they don't work very well. And the, the, the reversion to the idea, as the president of the World Bank has said, there isn't enough aid money in the system, so mm. the only solution we have is foreign direct investment. Foreign direct investment, there's, it has lots going for it. There's lots of good things that can come from foreign direct investment. But if you think it's going to end poverty, if it's going to take 1.1 billion people out of poverty in 15 years, you are dreaming in technicolor. Delusional. You're delusional, yes, right. absolutely. Um, it, it, it just isn't going to happen. I mean, we have to do a lot, a lot more. We have to spend a lot more money. We have to target the spending, just as we do here. Our social programs mm. are very targeted, very carefully thought through. If they're not working, we have people who will say they're not working and who will press to improve them. And you have a constant give and take, and governments have to listen to the give and take. Where development is concerned, you have very little of that. Mm. The whole notion of listening is so huge, it seems to me, just from a cross-cultural perspective, from a, from a policy perspective. And uh, I mean, I, uh, yeah. And then we put people in charge of CEDA, the, the CEDA minister, Julian Fantino, and I'm not faulting him. I mean, he was given that job and he's perhaps doing as best he can, but he has to go to Africa to get the message. He has to see it. Uh, and what did he think before that? What, what, were, what were his thoughts as minister before he actually went to Africa and spent three days looking at poor people? Mm. I mean, surely, surely we have to get this regularized and stabilized in a way that doesn't require a whole lot of next ministers and next politicians to go out there and see a starving person before they actually get the message. I mean, we, we, we've got to do better than that. I don't have to go to Newfoundland to understand the plight of Newfoundland fishermen. I don't have to go to Calgary to understand the plight of people who are being flooded out of their homes. Surely, surely we can do better than that. <clears throat> I mean, I wonder, is there a sense in which people don't really want to know? And when I say people, I mean governments. And, and, and are we in a climate right now of a, a don't know, a don't really want to know climate? So, you know, you've got Dembi Samoyo a few years ago with dead aid. You've got, I, I mean, I would argue that people are jumping on that bandwagon. See, what, see, I told you so. See, look at the amount of money we wasted. We, we, we never really were building capacity. We never really were doing development. I knew it all along, so therefore it's going to be about the public-private partnership. It's going to be about private money that's going to be invested. It's not about philanthropy. It's not about loving you know, the other or my neighbor. You know, or it's not about going the extra mile or, or, or about the other from a, you know, a purely existential perspective. This is back, we're back to business again, right? We're back to the free market. I, I think it's kind of interesting. I guess it's a question of uh, who, should, who should do it? Who should right. take responsibility for all of this or any of this? 
uh, is it me or is it the government or is it the World Bank or is it them? They have to take responsibility the for Rotary, themselves. The Rotary Club had a lot to do with uh, polio and, and eradicating that. So, Well, I sometimes uh, canvass for the CNIB or for the arthritis oh, okay. um, society. And uh, it's very instructive. I hate doing it. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. You know, do you knock on doors? Yeah, I yeah. knock on oh, doors. Yeah, that's and tough. it's that's tough and it's work. horrible. But you've got to do it. You've got to do it in the early evening, and it's dinner time, and a lot of people don't want to be bothered, and they're, you know, they're pestered, they're pestered by robocalls, and they're pestered by people banging <laughs> on the door, and, um, and and yet it's important to the arthritis society. Mm-hmm. It's important to CNIB. People don't don't give online. They don't give automatically or easily, and, you know, if if you can if you can if I've got fifty doors to knock on and I can get seven donations, then that's an achievement for, for, for those charities. And I think to myself, is that good enough? I mean, shouldn't somebody else be doing this? Shouldn't, shouldn't, somebody, shouldn't the government be doing this? I mean, but is the government going to do everything? Is it going to do everything CNIB does? Is it going to do everything the Arthritis Society does or the Red Cross? You know, we have a, a kind of a hit-and-miss society where some people do care and some people do give and it does make a difference and other people don't and won't and they have set their minds against it and they won't even answer the door at six o'clock. They're mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. the TV's on, I can smell the dinner and they're not answering the door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they won't... They won't give away. Yeah, they won't, <laughs> they won't come to the door and say no or give you an excuse. I already gave, I gave at the office. I, I don't know what the answer is, but... All of us have to take more responsibility for some things. And if it's only the Arthritis Society, fine. If it's um, the international challenge, I think, I think some of us have to do that too. A French philosopher who I've really enjoyed reading over the last couple of years, Emmanuel Levinas, who, who's uh, pretty obscure and difficult to, to wade through, said there's nobody, nobody's more responsible than I. And I think it's a paraphrase of Dostoevsky from the Brothers Karamazov, as far as I know. This notion that it, it, it all really comes back to me. It all comes back to this notion of commitment and intentionality and, and choice, I suppose. Sure, and you can't do everything. That's right. People yeah. who do will go crazy. Uh, people who try to do everything or worry about everything. So you have to sort of pick your battles. And that's one good reason maybe not to give to me when I knock on the door for the arthritis society. But it doesn't mean you should do nothing. And... Um, you know, we need more focus, more intelligent adult focus on the challenges of international development. We are working on arthritis here. There's a lot of money going into arthritis and it needs more and that's why I knock on doors. But there's not nearly enough attention being given to international problems. We have, we have a, a penchant for ignoring them, blaming the victim, giving when there's a disaster but not thinking about the long term and saying basically it's their own fault. Scott Peck said in The Road Less Traveled that this first sign of adult maturity is delayed gratification. And sometimes I've, I've wondered if, if, you know, with relief and why is it that people give these, you know, so much money when there's an earthquake or the tsunami and so on. And is it, is it that immediate sense of, wow, I, I, I did something really good today. I saved some lives. Uh, but they can't, they, you know, it's the whole forest for the trees, you know, approach. Can't, can't, don't really want to give in a long-term sense necessarily. I mean, when you look at the stats, they're pretty grim. From, from a philanthropic perspective, you know, you just, you just said moments ago, people don't give automatically or easily. And, uh, and it's, you know, I, I mean, I don't think it's just about the money here. And I think in some ways we're back to that comment that you made earlier about that moral force. 
And what is it, you know, for the taxi cab driver in, 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 in Pakistan, for me that says, that slams the door in your face and says, sorry, I gave it the office. And, and, and you know, it's, uh, we probably don't have time to go into it now, but it's... Uh, well, I think where, where international development is concerned, I think part of the problem is that um, we hear a lot of bad news from developing countries. What, new, what, what are the stories that the average Canadian get, gets about Africa? What, what do we hear about Africa? We hear about wars. Oh, we about it's, Ian, it's all about corruption. Drought and flood and, and corruption. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of ordinary stories that we read in the newspaper about what goes on in Toronto or Ottawa or Vancouver, um, we don't hear any of those ordinary stories. We don't hear anything about the achievements or the bridge that was built or the school that was opened. We don't hear any of that stuff. So all we get is the bad news plus the fundraising where a charity, a bad charity, a charity would tell you bad news and we can fix it <laughs> right. if you give 25 bucks. And a lot of people put two and two together and they say, well, it's not working. I'm, I'm not giving you the 25 bucks. It doesn't get there or it doesn't work. There's something wrong here. Um, somehow we have to narrow the distance between Canadians and Africans or Forget about Africa. Africa is a huge place. There are a lot of countries in Africa, 50 different countries in Africa, and some are very successful. We have to, we have to start getting better educated about the world and places and what's happening and understanding that people are looking after themselves and are doing things and that we need to build on that, that we mm. can build on mm. that. Um, it, isn't, it isn't all bad news and it isn't, it isn't all desperate, but there is a lot of desperation. And in some places, it's moving backwards. We are spending this year $2.2 billion on peacekeeping, UN peacekeeping, in the Congo, Cote d'Ivoire, and Liberia. $2.2 billion on peacekeeping. And we're barely keeping a lid on the problems. That is money that could have been spent on development. Forget about the development. I mean, the, the trouble in those countries, they're moving backwards. That Whatever development investment investments were made are actually being wrecked by hmm. the problems that we're trying to put a band-aid on. $2.2 billion, that's money that comes out of your pocket and mine. We're all taxpayers. Canada contributes as an assessed assessment to, yeah. the, to the United Nations for these peacekeeping efforts. Um, we've got to do better than that. It, we can't just run around putting out fires. We have to make sure the fires don't start. It's been a, it's been a while since I looked at the, how our tax dollar is used. There is, a, there is a PowerPoint out there on that, Ian. Um, but that shows you the percentage of your tax dollar that's going into development, that's going into education and health and, 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 and defense. be interesting to see um, uh, where, where we're at. Um, we, need to, we need to wrap up. Uh, and there's a comment that you, you make in uh, um, the last uh, chapter of From Patrons to Partners, uh, or, or sorry, in... Um, Patronage or partnership, it's called From Patrons to Partners, and this is Ian writing. Um, translators, quote, thus are extremely important interlocutors because more than translators, they be becoming more than translators, sorry. In fact, they become interpreters, a role for which they may be ill-equipped. Close quote. We've talked about memory. We've talked about listening. We've talked about a government spending $2.2 billion on, on defense just moments ago uh, that could have been spent on development. Is there something in your comment here about 
about the other, about understanding, about putting ourselves in someone else's shoes that, that is bubbling to the surface here that, that actually could uh, help us make a, 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 maybe a, a clearer distinction about a way forward? Well, we have the means to do that. We have communications now that we've never had before. We can get instant communications. Uh, you can watch the news in the evening and see events that happened that day anywhere in the world, anywhere, and people talking about, about their issues. I mean, sometimes they have to talk in another language, so you, you, have a, you have a translator, but then you have the interpretation that it isn't just the translation. The interpretation comes in the form of which images were selected right. and who was interviewed. Yeah. And what we <coughs> how me. long we let them speak and what they what we didn't hear them say and all that kind of thing. We don't have time for any more than short, short, short sound bites now. I'm surprised that you listen to CBC radio. They love to have a little bit of sound to go with a news item. So you'll hear with the flooding in Calgary, you'll hear water gurgling. Uh, right, right. Do we need to hear water gurgling nice. to know about the floods? But you'll get like a five-word clip from somebody who was affected by by the thing. I, I I'm not sure we can empathize with that right, kind of right. soundbite. We need we need we need a bigger attention span, a longer attention span to deal with some of these things. And the media is the media has the means to do it, but it 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 isn't. I think doing it very well. Form form of censorship, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. It, you know, we have uh, we watch a, we have a lot of movies and a lot of entertainment, TV shows, movies, and uh, radio, and all the rest of it about us and our culture and the things that we like. We never see um, we never see a sitcom about an African family. We never see uh, a comedy set in Africa or in Bangladesh or anywhere else with ordinary people doing funny things. Um, we don't see it because it probably wouldn't sell because people are not conditioned to it and. Sure. Sure. But until we can until we can empathize more with people, until we can understand them a little bit more on their terms and our terms, it's going to be hard to move ahead. You know, I think TV shows like The Jeffersons did so much to make African American African Americans more accessible to white Americans. That, that kind of thing, and, and, and getting movie actors, stars like Sidney Poitier and, and, you know, and then Denzel Washington and then Morgan Freeman, and now it's much more common. I mean, they, they help to bring black Americans into the forefront for white Americans. I, I, they were speaking, of course, also to black Americans and mm -hmm. black American audience, but I think you know, we, we've got to find ways to cross these huge gaps. Sure, these cross-cultural... I mean, that's what I was trying to get to. I think, I mean, to me, in this comment, in this quote, you're talking about cross-cultural awareness and effectiveness and this just ability to listen. And you've, you've talked about it several times. It's notion and here. of empathy. And here. Yeah, and, 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 and take it to heart. And, and uh, um, actually make a difference in the long run. Um, Ian, thank you so much. Uh, we are almost at the the end of a bottle of Wakefield Shiraz, Clare Valley 2010. So I think we need to end it there. Uh, otherwise, this 
uh, interview is going to spiral downward very quickly. <laughs> um, thanks for joining us, uh, Ian. Um, your new book is coming out when, do you know? Uh, well, it'll be coming out in 2014. It's, uh, it's in the editing process now. It's uh, the second book I've written on diamonds, and it's called Diamonds. Diamonds. How appropriate. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today, and I'll look forward to chatting with you uh, uh, sometime again, hopefully soon. Thank you. Thank you.